Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 235. It's titled, What If House Prices Always Declined? In June 2018, I released an episode titled, How to Navigate a Housing Bubble. It was episode 211. It was one of the most listened to episodes of my show in 2018 with more than 55,000 downloads. Not everyone liked the episode. Lazy Rock gave the episode one stars on Apple Podcast. He wrote, This show was a total waste of time. The title talks about how to navigate a housing bubble. And then the show spends the entire time talking about the problem of the housing bubble instead of presenting creative ways on how to actually navigate it. It just keeps talking about the things that anyone listening to it would already know if they're dealing with a housing bubble. You can stay put in your house, you can move in with relatives, or you can leave the area and try to go somewhere else. But the challenge is the housing bubbles are having are happening all over the country. And most of the desired areas live, and they can go for years. When I take the time to listen to a podcast, I want them to give me ideas that help actually solve the problem, and not just going around and round about the problem. He actually captured the episode a little bit because there is no magic when it comes to dealing with a housing bubble. You can stay put where you're currently at. Maybe you're renting. You could move in with relatives, like the example I gave in that episode. You can leave and go where houses are cheaper. And I really emphasize the point that you can't time a housing bubble, particularly if you have many individuals coming from outside your geographic area to purchase, such as we're seeing in Idaho with a lot of Californians moving in, pushing up housing prices. And so it can go on a long time. And I gave the example Canada and Australia. I'm not sure what creative solutions he was seeking. What else could be done? There's a housing bubble. And I think about it because we are in the process of purchasing a second home in central Phoenix. We'll close later this month. And this is the most I have paid on a per square foot basis for a house in my life. And I've done what I've talked about in episodes on housing bubbles. I've been very careful to look at, well, what is the price of homes in Phoenix relative to income and rent. And they're, sli- they're not in a bubble. They're not as high as they got in 2007, but they're slightly above average. Prices have leveled off in the last few months. And I have no idea what housing prices will do. I have done, and we have done, LaPrell and I, what I discussed In episode 130, should you buy a vacation home? Because this is a second home for us. And I quoted from the book, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They write, in life design, we reframe a lot. The biggest reframe is that your life can't be perfectly planned and that there isn't just one solution to your life. And that's a good thing. There are many designs for your life, all filled with hope for the kind of creative 
and unfolding reality that makes life worth living into. Your life is not a thing, it's an experience. The, comes, the fun comes from designing and enjoying the experience. And they talked about prototyping, having a bias to action, and then trying different things. And we have tried living last, in different areas. Last winter, we, we drove all over the south part of the U.S., partially looking at, you know, is there somewhere else that we would like to live in the winter? We've lived in Phoenix for weeks and months at a time, all different times of year, trying it out. And the reality is vacation rentals in Phoenix are really pricey because the weather's great during the winter. And ultimately, we decided we would be willing to buy a small home so that we can have our stuff and to benefit from the optionality that Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about in Skin in the Game. He mentioned that owning a second home is inefficient compared to hotels or rental. But people that do want to make sure they're available to them when they want to use them on a whim, that they actually have a home to go to, because it's hard to be moving around and we want to set roots in a particular area. So that's what we're doing from a housing standpoint. But what's interesting, over the last three weeks, we've been traveling in Japan. I'm currently recording this in Tokyo. It's a very different housing market. In many ways, it's an anti-bubble. Japan land prices, and I pulled this up from an annual study on Japanese home prices. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Actually, I forget the name of the bank, the Japanese bank that compiles the data. But nationally, since 1991, that was the peak of the Japanese housing market. Home prices have fallen, or actually, this is just land. This is just land, the valuable part of a house over rent or a residential area. It has fallen 23 out of the past 28 years. And land values nationally in Japan have fallen 50% since 1991. And they've declined 1.5% annually for the past decade. 2018 was the first year in many years that Japanese home prices or land prices were positive, up 0.3%. Tokyo's done a little better. They have the Tokyo area land prices have fallen 20 out of the past 29 years. Land prices have declined 70% since 1991. There was a bigger bubble there. The average decline has been 1% per year over the past decade. So it's not fallen quite as much as nationally, which fell 1.5% annually. But over the past five years, it's actually been positive. 0.7% average appreciation for land prices in the Tokyo area over the last five years. And they were up 1% in 2018. But the trend has been down every year, particularly if you get outside of the Tokyo area. And and partly, why? Because, as we've talked about in other episodes, the demographics, the population within Japan is shrinking. There are less people to own land. And as a result, land 
has been in a downward price spiral. What about houses? I mean, that's land. Maybe houses are actually doing better than land and you can act, you can get appreciation. Nope. This is from The Guardian. This is an article from November 2016. It's titled, Raise, Rebuild, Repeat. Why Japan Knocks Down Its Houses After 30 Years. The quote is, Unlike in other countries, Japanese homes gradually depreciate over time becoming completely valueless within 20 or 30 years. When someone moves out of a home or dies, the house, unlike the land it sits on, has no resale value and is typically demolished. This scrap and build approach is a quirk of the Japanese housing market that can be explained variously by low-quality construction to quickly meet demand after the Second World War, repeated building code revisions, to improve earthquake resilience, and a cycle of poor maintenance due to the lack of any incentive to make homes marketable for resale. So if the house is going to depreciate anyway, how much do you put into the house and how much quality do you put into it? We're staying in a duplex in Tokyo, in the Maguro area, and the owner lives upstairs And we were downstairs. 27-year-old house. I asked her how long she's lived here. She says she was born here. She's around 60. And she's lived in the same spot. But they tore the house down 27 years ago and built a new one. And when I asked her, is that normal? She seemed surprised by the question. Of course it's normal. (laughs) What else would you do? Houses get old. You tear them down. In fact, as I record this, they're building a house about 30 feet away. It's really noisy. I waited till they went to lunch. Hopefully, they've gone to lunch. But when the workers come back, you'll you'll hear hammering and sawing because they are rebuilding a house that was torn down. My friend lives out in the Tokyo area, out by Narita Airport. They bought a house in the last year, and it's a tough decision to buy a house. Mortgage rates are really attractive. You can get a 21 to 35-year-old, 35-year mortgage for 0.9% as of January 2019. Less than 1% for a mortgage. They bought a house. It's 97 square meters, about 291 square feet. It's very small, he says, and they paid $200,000 for it. He said that was inexpensive for the area. They were originally asking $300,000, but they lowered it because they weren't sure it was going to sell fast enough. And after a few months, it wasn't considered new anymore, even though no one had ever lived in it. And they've actually done that. He and and my son, they've have seen home builders tear down a brand new house that no one ever bought and to rebuild a new one because it was old. Now, that that's a quirk, but it's something that's been going on for generations in Japan. There's some ancient writing called the Hojoki, 
It was written in 1212 by Buddhist monk Kamo no Chomei. He wrote, In our dazzling capital, which would be Kyoto, the houses of high and low crowd the street, a jostling throng of roof and tile, and have done so down the generations. Yet ask if this is truly so. You discover that almost no house has been there from of old. Some burned down last year, and this year were rebuilt. Others were once grand mansions, gone to ruin, where now small houses stand. Chomei continued, As the days passed, ruin fell upon those fine houses with their jostling throng of roofs. The buildings were dismantled and floated down the Yodo, and before our eyes the land turned to cropping fields. Tastes changed. Now everyone prized only the horse and saddle, and the ox and carriage went quite unused. Now property on the southwest seaboard was sought after, while no one cared for estates to the north or east. There's another quirk about Japanese houses. We've stayed in five different Airbnbs on this trip. Kyoto, Osaka, Hiroshima, the Gunma Prefecture, and Tokyo. And one defining characteristic is each one of those houses, some were new, some were older, they were absolutely freezing. The entryways, the hallways, the bathroom, no heat at all. Temperatures here have been 40, in, the, in the 40s, going down into the 30s Fahrenheit at night. You'd want some heat in the bathroom. And the Japanese are very innovative. They have heated toilet seats, yet the bathrooms have no heat. Several of the homes we stayed in had no heat even in the kitchen. Very little insulation in Japanese homes. Why is it? Why are Japanese houses so cold? Before we look at why houses in Japan are freezing, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. The first reason I thought that Japanese houses were so cold is because if you're buying a depreciating asset, why put that much into it if you know it's going to fall in price. But that turns out not to be the case. 
Here's an article from the Financial Times. They write that Japanese houses traditionally prioritize airflow over insulation, with paper screens, bamboo shutters, and permeable walls saving the house from mold. And that's continued to today in that they heat one room at a time and it saves energy. Japan uses a quarter of the energy for heating as Germany does, the article points out. And here's a quote from Alastair Townsend. He's co-founder of Bakoko. It's a Tokyo architectural practice. He writes, the attitude to, to the thermal environment is different in Japan. It's getting snug under a kotatsu, which is a heated table, rather than walking through the house in, the t- in a t-shirt. And the article says, unlike most other developed countries, Japan has never graduated from local heat sources, such as hearths, to a thermostat system. Now people rely on air conditioners, gas or kerosene heaters, or simply a 10-minute soak in a scalding hot bath to get them through a chilly evening. So it isn't because they're cheap. It's they, they like that connection to the outdoors, which includes being cold. I saw this in Gunma, which is north, about 80 miles north of Tokyo. Surrounded by mountains, really pretty areas. It's the area that my oldest son is teaching at. And we went and visited the home of one of the art teachers in the elementary school where he works. And we met with the teacher. We met with her parents who were in their 70s. And and we tucked into this house, in this room with tatami mats. And we were we were under one of these kotatsus, these heated tables. We stuck our feet under there. There was a heater under there. And we had to be under there because the room was cold. But, you know, it was probably 48 degrees outside. There was no, The heater was not on. They had this the screen, the sliding doors opened to a sunroom where a cat was bathing in the sun or just taking in the sunlight. And we were lo- overlooking a, a beautifully manicured garden. And I asked the owner, how long had she lived there? 41 years. So this was a house they hadn't torn down. When she was first, when she was a child, they lived in an apartment. And then they moved in this house next to her grandparents. When the grandparents died, they put the two houses together. The the old man is in his 70s. He was wearing a hat, fingerless gloves. It was cold. And eventually we were there a couple hours and we shut those sliding screen doors. We were tucked in under this table and we finally turned on the heat. But it came to realize that there's actually, you kind of get used to, to that. When our son has asked the Japanese, why do they do this? It, it's sort of, it's a, <laughs> a heated table. And I, this is kind of what we do. And you realize For generations, they've done this. They like that connection to the outdoors, to have more, to have some airflow in the house and be able to look out onto the garden. That's what Zen gardens are. Some of these these much older temples are situated that way. And Chomei talked about this in in his writing. He, He mentioned that he had got a house 
and property through his paternal grandmother. He lived there many years. And then later, when he's got 30, he, he had to leave that area. He built a house a tenth of the size. He writes, I built only a single dwelling for myself. There was no means to add any decent outbuildings. I managed to put a wall around it, but funds did not stretch to a front gate. I used bamboo as the frame for a shed to hold the carriage. Things were always far from safe. Whenever snow fell or the wind blew, the place was near the river, so it was in deep danger of flooding, and robbers were a source of constant worry. He was definitely connected to the outdoors on that house. And later, he was in his 50s, he decided to become a monk and turn his back on the world. He had no wife or children, so he had no close ties to break. He spent five years up in the O'Hara Mountains, and then when he turned 60, he decided to build another house to live out the rest of his life. The very, very small house. He, said, he writes, I am, if you will, like a traveler who throws up a shelter for the night or an old silkworm spinning his cocoon. It is not a hundredth the size of the house of my middle years. As I complain my way through life, each passing year has added to my age and each move reduced my dwelling. This house looks quite unlike a normal one. It is a mere 10 feet square and less than 7 feet high. Since I was not much concerned about where I lived, I did not construct the house to fit the site. I simply set up a foundation, put up a bit of roof, and fastened each joint with a metal catch, so that if I don't care for one place, I could easily move to another. Just how much trouble would it be to rebuild it after all? The house would take up a mere two cartloads to shift, and the only expense would be the carrier. Should that be what we do if we know, if we're going to live in an area where we know a house that we buy is going to fall in price? Should we build as cheaply and as small as possible? I don't think so. When you buy a car, you know the car is going to fall in value. But we don't buy the cheapest car. Some do. And I can tell you, there are in Japan, they have what are called K-cars. And K-cars actually get a special, they get a yellow license plate. Because in, in Japan, you pay taxes each year on your car. And if you have a K-car, a very, very small, micro-compact car that doesn't go very fast, you don't have to pay as many taxes. But as the car gets older, the taxes actually go up on the car. And, and so there's, there's some incentive to, to have newer cars. Just like there's incentive, or at least the desire to own a newer house. But some people are willing to take, to buy a nicer car, even though the dollars they will lose in terms of depreciation is greater. And why are they, why are they willing to do that? What's lifestyle? We want certain things and we're willing, as long as you recognize, and there's no guarantee if you buy a house in the U.S. or you buy a house in an area where there's a bubble or this house that we're buying in Phoenix is not going to fall in value. And so when you, when you think about what should I buy, you could rent and, and be absolutely assured you'll be out of that money. Or you can buy and you'll know what the insurance cost will be in the taxes, but you won't know whether 
the house will fall in value. You will in Japan, it's going to fall in value because the population is shrinking. And even though they're starting to refurbish older homes, that's just not part of the culture. They want newer homes and they want homes without central heating. And it's different in other places in in Asia. In Korea, the houses in South Korea, the houses have central heating. They have, they're all heated by water flowing through underneath the floors, but not in Japan. They want that connection to the outdoor. Chomei wanted that. He talked about his ability to meditate because he was so connected to it. He could see and gaze upon the the swaths of wisteria in the spring and the purple clouds in the summer. He could hear the birds and he could hear the crickets in the autumn. In the winter, he could see the snow. And that's kind of how a lot of Japanese houses are set up. Damien Flanagan wrote in the Japan Times, he bought a house in Japan, knowing it would fall in price. And he kind of described the housing dynamics that we have mentioned in this episode. And I'll link to that particular article in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com while you're there. If, if you would sign up for my free weekly insider's guide, this is an email I send out each Wednesday after the episode is released. It'll have that week's links as well as an essay I do, a summary of the particular episode as well as something that that didn't make it into the episode or a a completely different topic. And I only share that with that email list. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Flanagan writes, my house is the physical manifestation of my lifelong commitment to Japan. And even at one point in the future, the house is destroyed What will always endure is the land beneath it. That connection to a very specific place and a tiny piece of Japanese soil is for me an almost spiritual bond. And I could see this with the the woman whose whose house we're, we're living in right now. She's been on this spot of land her entire life, even though it's the second house that's been there. Flanagan continues, if you wish to invest in such a Japanese home, be prepared for the way that the building itself will assume a place in your heart. Your return on that investment is best measured in terms of the pleasure it will yield and the doorway to the intimacies of community and the Japanese mind it will lure you into. That's why we're buying a house in Phoenix. We want a greater connection and intimacy to the community. We like being in Arizona during the winter. We like to hike. I like to bike. I love all the bike trails along the canals. I love the the desert fauna. And we want to set down some roots and have more of a connection, a connection you don't always get when you're renting. Paying cash. And we're not going in thinking it's going to appreciate much at all. The annual expenses are similar to what we would pay for rent on some type of vacation rental for four or five months. Hopefully it will hold its value, but I'm not betting on it. We shouldn't tie our retirement prospects to somehow our house will appreciate. We should always go in, I think, to a house 
that you buy for the lifestyle reason, considering that it could fall in value. Maybe not as guaranteed as it would be in Japan where you have a shrinking population. You just have a culture of new houses are worth more than older ones and that they're torn down often after 30 years. But even if you live somewhere else, don't go in hoping it will appreciate in value. We've done episodes on that. Oftentimes, what people believe is the gain they're getting from the houses is the leverage they haven't deployed. When they've borrowed 80 to 90% of the value and it goes up a little bit by inflation, that magnifies your gain. But many learned in 2006, 2007, the dangers of leverage and how that, that equity, if there was any, can be eaten up very quickly when home prices fall. So when you buy, don't use, try to use as little leverage as possible and make your choice based on lifestyle. Don't reach to get the biggest house you can. Just choose to live somewhere where you can have a connection to community and establish those roots and decide how much potential depreciation you're willing to take if home prices fall. That's episode 235. Again, show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.